Hello, everybody. I'm Heather Ward, SCA's Senior Manager of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Podcast. Today's episode is part of our SCA lecture series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at SCA's Specialty Coffee Expo and World of Coffee events. Check out the show notes for relevant links and a full transcript of today's lecture. As we're taking some time to work through our 2019 lecture recordings from Expo, we thought we'd take this time to share some lectures from 2018 that haven't yet been released. Also, for more information on the upcoming World of Coffee lectures in Berlin this June, visit worldofcoffee.org. World Coffee Research and Counterculture have both independently been working on better, more up-to-date reference guides on coffee varieties research in Ethiopia and East Africa. Counterculture will present on their newly published material that for the first time consolidates over 50 in-depth descriptions on the varieties of Ethiopia. In this episode, WCR presents on their newly published African Variety Intelligence Report, outlining the varieties and research of coffees from Kenya and other East African countries. This unique collaboration hopes to be for people a missing puzzle piece of information on some of the most beloved and misunderstood origins in the world. Moderator Hannah Nushwander of World Coffee Research leads our panel. Dr. Benoit Bertrand of CIRAD, Christophe Montagnon of World Coffee Research, Gaitu Bikili Gadefa of Counterculture, author Jeff Kohler, and Timothy Hill of Counterculture Coffee. Also, I'll jump in occasionally to help you follow along in the podcast. Take it from here, Hannah. Hello, everybody. This is Beyond Heirlooms and Hybrids, breaking down the coffees of Ethiopia and East Africa. Thank you for being here with us. My name is Hannah Neuschwander. I am the Communications Director at World Coffee Research, um, and we're going to try to have a pretty free-flowing conversation today with a number of folks who know quite a lot about African varieties, um, but we're also going to try to leave time for you to ask questions. Uh, I'm going to be your moderator today. As I said, my name is Hannah. I'm the Communications Director of World Coffee Research, um, and I am joined here by five amazing, incredible expert panelists. Um, I'm going to tell you very briefly who they are, and then we should have an opportunity to hear more from them in the coming minutes. Um, Sitting right here to my right is Timothy Hill. He is the green coffee buyer for Counterculture Coffee. Um, He has been buying coffees from Africa for a very long time um, and brings a really, um, I think, perspective that's going to be interesting to all of you as a a buyer of coffee. Um, To his right, we have Getu Bekele, who is a uh, former breeder from Ethiopia, knows about as much about Ethiopian coffee varieties as anyone. Um, Used to work for the Jima Agricultural Research Center, yeah, JARC, in Ethiopia. Then we have Christophe Montagnon. He is the scientific director of World Coffee Research, a coffee breeder for many, many, many years who has worked in all regions of the world, um, lived for a long time in Cote d'Ivoire, um, was a robusta breeder, and knows about as much about coffee varieties as anybody that I know. Like, you guys have no idea how star-studded this panel is. <laughs> when it comes to varieties, it's, it's amazing. So make sure that you seek um, them out after the lecture to ask more questions if you have them. 
Um, next to Christophe is Benoit Bertrand. He is a coffee breeder with CIRAD, which is a French research institute uh, that has done quite a lot of work in coffee variety development over the last few decades. Um, he was formerly the chief breeder at World Coffee Research, which is how I got to know him. Um, and he himself is uh, the breeder of many very famous coffee varieties, um, especially that are available in Central America. Um, but has been doing a lot of work using um, Ethiopian genetic material in creating new F1 hybrid varieties. So we're going to talk about that. And next to Benoit, we have Jeff Kohler. Can I say that right? Okay. Who is um, the author of Where the Wild Coffee Grows. It is a totally amazing new book about the uh, wild coffee forests of Ethiopia and the people and the economies that exist around those forests. These are the, this is the place where coffee evolved first, um, Arabica coffee evolved first 10,000 years ago. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book that's meant for regular people. It's not a science, um, it's not a book for scientists specifically, although our scientists love it. So I, can, I really highly recommend it. I don't think it's available at the SCA store, but it is available at any um, bookstore. And it's, it's truly remarkable if you want to learn about the story and the history of coffee. So... That's who uh, we are, and I think we're just going to get started so that we have time to have as much conversation as possible. Um, the way this is going to work is that I'm going to ask our panelists to reflect on some of their work and their expertise, and we're going to kind of move the conversation um, around. If you, I'm a fan of free-flowing conversations, so if you have a really urgent, burning question about something... Um, do raise your hand, and if it makes sense and if it's possible in the flow, I may try to call on you, but we will also try to reserve questions for the end. Um, okay, does that sound good? Everybody's on the same page? Okay. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, we're going to start with Jeff. So, um, And the reason we're going to do that is because the work that he's done in writing this book about wild coffee forests is really... Um, it, it takes us back to the beginning of Arabica coffee, and you can't talk about breeding and varieties and the development that's happened over the last um, hundred years in Africa without looking at where coffee originated, where it came from in the first place. Um, so, Jeff, you were able to spend quite a bit of time traveling around to some of these forests in Ethiopia where uh, wild coffee still grows. Um, and wild, I'm not sure wild is exactly the right term for it because it is also um, tended by, by people who, um, or picked, I guess, harvested by people working and living in the forest. Can you give us kind of a quick overview on the story of Arabica coffee starting in these forests? And I've got a couple photos here that I might pull up as you talk. Sure. Um, I mean, kind of despite its name, uh, the, the, the center of diversity and the origin of Arabica coffee is actually Ethiopia. And it's in the kind of this the cloud forest, um, kind of predominantly in the southwest of the country, a couple hundred miles from Addis Ababa. Um, and it was in these forests here, um, these are in Kaffa, uh, these cloud forests, every morning the kind of clouds kind of push down, where Arabica began kind of its spread, uh, kind of around the globe. And that began by people going into the forest and actually taking seeds or saplings and kind of planting them around their house, um, and that kind of gradually spread um, but the first place that kind of cultivated Arabica on a, on a wide scale was actually the Arabian Peninsula. Um, precisely when 
uh, it went from those cloud forests, um, as in the photo here, to modern-day Yemen is kind of unclear. But by, say, 1550, when the Ottoman Empire uh, took control of the area, it was being grown on a commercial level. Um, the Ottomans kind of increased production and uh, planting, and they had for about two centuries kind of um, complete control of the market from their port in Mocha. But, you know, coffee became too popular not, not to spread cultivation. And by the early 1700s, the first kind of seed was smuggled out of Yemen, um, first by the Dutch planted in Java, and that became the typical variety. And then a little bit later by the French uh, to Bourbon, or now the island of Reunion, which became Bourbon. Um, and, you know, Arabica spread easily, and it, it grew rapidly, and in the right conditions kind of thrived. And within three decades, it was growing on five continents, um, and, you know, today it's grown in about 40 countries in this kind of equatorial band between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. And the main um, Arabica varieties are coming out of this kind of these two groups, Tipica and Bourbon. And we're going to probably hear lots about those today. So it's kind of a very brief overview of its spread. Yeah. Here's a map that sort of shows how it left Ethiopia, went to Yemen, and then from there has spread around the world. I'm going to go back real quick to... Um, just a couple photos, just just to give you a feel for how... Has anybody here ever been to a coffee farm? Raise your hand. Whoa, that's like everybody almost. <laughs> I was not expecting that, um, right? Does this look anything like a modern coffee farm? <laughs> no, but this is how coffee evolved. This is the environment in which coffee evolved. These trees look totally different than the way that we are used to seeing them on a coffee farm because they evolved in these deep forested understories. So the trees had to be tall and gangly to get up to the light, to get energy, to keep growing. Um, and it's really important to keep that context in mind as we talk about the development of varieties and the development of coffee breeding, um, because humans have done a lot to change the coffee plant, right? Over the course of these many um, centuries of selecting plants that have the traits that work best for us in a farming context. Um, I just want to show you a couple more photos because they're really cool. And so, Jeff, can you just tell us really quickly a little bit about... Um, the, yeah, the, the, this is actually in the Mankira Forest, and this is in Kaffa, which is an area, real kind of the heartland of the wild coffee forest. Um, and these are just going and foraging for coffee. I mean, uh, they go in and they go kind of quite deep into the forest and just forage for the wild coffee. They're, they're taking things, I think there's another photo of the, the beans. That they take them yellow, green, red. They're not only getting the perfectly ripe... Uh, kind of maroon cherry, because it, there's no guarantee that they're going to be there when they come back. You know, they're, they're very uh, popular with certain birds, with the monkeys, um, so they tend to kind of take everything. And that's certainly one thing you see when, they, when you see the, 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 the foragers and they're gathering them in their, in their baskets of, of uh, fruits. There you go. This is what they're taking. So th this, is, this is unlike a lot of coffee farms, I think, when you see those perfectly, mm -hmm. you know, everything is ideally kind of crimson. In, in the forest, it's a bit of everything. So they, they go quite deep into the forest. Um, the, you know, the, there's no... Um, on that, You have kind of a right to harvesting or foraging certain areas, and they just kind of go in and collect from their area. And this is... I don't know. I just find this really fascinating because there are people today that are still cultivating coffee in the way that coffee was cultivated basically when it was first understood to be something special to humans. Um, and that is that is pretty exciting. And one of the things that the folks that are that are doing this work are doing, whether they're fully aware of it or not, is um, tending to this storehouse of genetic diversity that exists for coffee. So typically for a plant, um, or really any 
living being, the place where it evolved tends to have the highest amount of genetic diversity in the world. And then as it moves around the world, you lose some of that genetic diversity because not every plant gets up and walks away to a field in Colombia or gets up and walks away to a field in Brazil. Um, In fact, most of the cultivated coffee around the world um, comes from just a few trees originally, you know, going back a few hundred years. So it's what we call a genetic bottleneck. So, but I actually want to ask you to reflect on this a little bit, Benoit. Um, This is a question that I actually get a lot as the the communications person for World Coffee Research. As you start delving in a little bit to this question of, well, is it this variety or is it that variety or what about this? Um, You begin to quickly get back to it. this sort of more fundamental question, which is, what is a variety? What makes one uh, type of plant distinct from another? Um, And what does wild actually mean? So if we're talking about Ethiopia, wild coffee, cultivated coffee, can you reflect on that a little? (coughs) Concerning the varieties, what is a variety? Um, For breeders, variety is something very clear, with an... um, juridical aspects because we we eventually can put a patent on variety. So there is law that define clearly what is a variety. A variety is something that is is a group of individuals that are uh, distinct from other, uh, homogeneous and stable. This, uh, di- we can di- uh, variety we we should uh, we we must dis- uh, we must authenticate the variety. That means that we have to discriminate the variety from other plants or from other varieties already existing. The first. Uh, homogeneous, that means that all the individuals are more or less the same, with a small, small variation. And stable, that means that uh, at each generation, we are, we are able to reproduce and propagate the same uh, variety, the same uh, exactly the same characteristics that we have. For botanists, it's something different. Variety for botanists is a group of individuals in a certain place where you have some characteristics, but there is, for example, if you know in Robusta conilon, the conilon could be considered as a botanical variety, but not a variety in, in, in such, because in conilon, there is some variability, and in Cognon, you can generate varieties for breeders. Is it clear enough? Yeah, yeah. To give you an example that might be something you recognize, um, if you're familiar with Pacamara, right, this is a relatively famous, what we in this room would probably think of as a variety from El Salvador. Um, it doesn't actually reach the level of, um, it doesn't meet the thresholds that Benoit just described to be considered a variety in the sort of official breeder's sense because it's not fully stable and fully homogenous. When you take seeds from Pacamara and plant them in the ground, you will get variation. And it's enough variation that you can't really consider it a fully homogenous or stable variety. It doesn't mean that a farmer can't grow it and that a roaster couldn't market it as Pacamara, but it would be very difficult to um, protect it in the legal sense um, because it doesn't meet, fully meet that distinct, uniform, and homogenous um, and stable definition. It could over time. So uh, one of the things that a breeder does, and what's reflected on this graph to some degree, is observe plants that have characteristics that we like, that are 
and that could mean many things, right? It could mean it tastes amazing, it is tolerant to drought, it has a really high yield. Whatever your particular set of traits is that you're interested in, you recognize them, and then you select the plants that have those traits, and you take the seeds from them and you plant them. And then when those babies grow up, there's going to be some variation. You take the ones that are the most close to what you like, and you plant them and you select them. And over time, you end up with distinct, uniform, and stable varieties that are, you know, kind of genetically quite different maybe from where they originated. A quick question. Yeah. An audience member is asking, how long does this process take? Uh, Traditional breeding for Arabica? 20, 25, 30 years to produce a variety without uh, the traditional uh, way. It is uh, genealogical selection, technical Terminology. Yeah. So one of the things one of the things we're going to talk about today is that pr- how that process has unfolded in Africa. We're going to focus um, a lot on Ethiopia because we have the benefit of some expertise there, but also on some other countries um, as well, and look at what some of the breeding and variety development has looked like. And I think one of the larger kind of points that we hope you walk away with is that while we might think of um, coffee from Ethiopia in particular, but even coffee from Kenya, SL28, SL34, as being, you know, quote-unquote heirloom varieties. In fact, they're the product of a very um, intentional process where breeders were doing this selection and looking for particular traits that were going to benefit the farmers that they worked with and for. Um, and so I guess with that, that's a nice transition for you to get to. No, uh, sorry, uh, oh, Anna, yeah. I, have, I have to... Oh, yeah. Yes, about Jumping. the wild, about if uh, coffee is wild. If there is Ethiopian, Arabica, Ethiopian wild coffee that we can name wild coffee. It's a, it's a very important issue for, uh, for sci- the scientific community. In fact, we don't know that because, as Jeff says, human has, uh, for many, many years ago, uh, has picked some seeds in the forest to, to uh, as arv- um, sorry, many, uh, people as harvest uh, seeds and as grown these seeds in some uh, places in Ethiopia. So there is, we, we don't know for the moment if there is what we name a domestication syndrome in coffee. Mm. That means that is it, for example, in wheat, in wheat, Wheat? Wheat. Wheat. Mm-hmm. There is a clear domestication syndrome because if you, if you are able to see the, the ancestor of the wheat, you see just a weed. And it looks it, nothing like the cultivated a, yes. variety. For coffee, it's not so clear. So we prefer for the moment to say that there is land races. Mm. I mean, that is land races could be considered as, as a... a the difference between uh, black, uh, white, or an Asiatic people, m- m- more or less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is no, no more than, than that. There, there is very little differences. So there is really, uh, we are more speaking about land races than uh, white coffee. Yeah, this is really important terminology for scientists and breeders, but it's also useful, I think, for people in this room to understand that... As Benoit was saying, if you look at like the wild relative of wheat or a watermelon, it looks nothing like the cultivated varieties. 
coffee, it's not so clear. And the term land race is the, is the sort of scientific jargon term that we use in order to distinguish between the, a variety that meets that definition, distinct, uniform, stable, um, and something that is closer to wild. But it could mean that it's cultivated um, by people. It could grow in a garden. It could grow in a forest and be tended by people. But it doesn't, hasn't, doesn't fully meet that definition. Kind of make sense? It's good, to, it's good to have a shared terminology <laughs> when you're talking about this stuff, so thank you. Um, so, yeah, with that, get to. I'd like to turn over to you and have you talk a little bit about um, the, the breeding program in Ethiopia and what some of that work has looked like, a, a, maybe kind of painting a picture of what Ethiopian coffee growing looks like today. What are growers planting in the field? Where did those plants come from? How did they come to be? Thank you, Anna. Uh, yeah, most of you, you know that just Ethiopia is uh, the center of origin and genetic diversity for, for Arabica coffee. So like the country uh, grows different uh, types of uh, coffees in different parts of uh, the country. So like we have uh, very diverse agroecology when you're going to the east, uh, west, southwest, and the extreme west. Then you can find like different uh, coffee land races, as uh, Bino mentioned. So the combination of like the presence of this diverse genetic diversity and uh, agroecology uh, brought a kind of like great great opportunity for the country to produce different coffee types in different parts of uh, the country. So to uh, paint a kind of good picture about Ethiopian coffee, maybe starting like what kind of production systems are there? In the country, we have uh, the first coffee production system, which is, uh, like most of the time, people mention that part, like wild, wild coffee. Yeah, so it should be more clear about wild coffee. When we are talking about wild, uh, there are wild relatives of Arabica coffee, which is Coffea caniforea and uh, uh, Coffea coffee igniosis, uh, which are now basically coexisting with their uh, progeny Arabica, like in Ethiopia. These species are like existing somewhere around Madagascar, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So, yeah. Just to say really quick and jump in on that. So there's 125 species of coffee in the coffee family. We only drink two of them, basically, Arabica and Robusta. So when we're talking today about um, coffee and variety development, we're talking just about Arabica. These are the yeah. higher quality coffees that we drink te in the specialty industry. Robusta is, is um, the, the species name is Canephora, but you guys know what Robusta is. So really, we're talking just about one species. Yeah, uh, exactly. So uh, we're talking about the wild Arabica coffee. We, we call it wild because it's growing in a wild forest where it grows naturally without any interference by human beings. So all the breeding, the evolution, exists like without the interference of hu human beings. So that is uh, the first coffee we have in Ethiopia. So that's one of the production system. Just uh, like as a co coffee buyer, it's possible to get a coffee harvested from this production system. Then the second one is like the semi forest, where there is a kind of like the presence of wild Arabica coffee, uh, intercropped or planted with improved coffee varieties, like farmers, they can bring in their new improved varieties and bring bring in the farm, and they can produce the wild and improved coffee varieties in this production system. Uh, the third and the largest percentage of coffee production system in the country is the garden coffee, which is very dominant, like in the south, uh, in the southwest 
uh, not in the southwest, basically in the west. Uh, and in the east part of the country, this kind of production system is really very uh, dominant. And the last but not the least is big farms, which is owned by uh, big investors. These are like around 200 hectares of coffee farm. Even uh, somewhere in the southwest, it can be around like 500 hectares of, of coffee farm, which is uh, existing in the country. So these are the four different production systems. So within this production system, we have different uh, coffee types growing uh, in the system. So to start with maybe uh, what kind of breeding uh, strategy followed in the country, uh, it's a kind of like 40 years of experience about uh, Ethiopian coffee variety development. So the modern coffee breeding uh, program started back in 1970s, the early 1970s, uh, after the outbreak of coffee varieties. And I know that just most of you, uh, uh, if you're traveling to the origin, uh, you, can, you can better understand what coffee berry disease is. So that's a kind of very devastating disease which happened back in 1917 in the country. It's really devastated like the whole, the whole industry. So the only option at that point was like to uh, intervene with, uh, with the use of chemical fungicide. But that was not really sustainable. Then breeders decided like to get into the forest and find a naturally resistant coffee variety that, that can be very sustainable. Uh, so uh, breeders, they went to the southwest forest uh, because Ethiopia has got very diverse genetic diversity for Arabica coffee. It's possible to find different varieties for different traits. Like it's possible to find a variety which is drought tolerant. It's possible to find a variety which is disease resistant. And it's possible to find different varieties for different uh, breeding interests. So at that point in 1970s, the interest was to develop naturally resistant uh, coffee varieties. And as a result, uh, in 1978, just uh, breeders developed around 13 different uh, coffee varieties which are resistant to uh, coffee berry disease. So the strategy was, at that point, like developing a variety in the southwestern part of Ethiopia and distributing these varieties all over the country. The strategy was like developing a wide adapting variety that means tested in one area and distributed all over the country. Immediately, like after two or three years of distributing these varieties, like most of the varieties failed to adapt outside of their own original region. That is the southwestern part of, part of the country. So, for example, a very good example of uh, adaptation failure was in the east. Uh, if you ever heard of Harage coffee, so this is the eastern part of the country uh, where like water, water is like a big issue. It's uh, a very like a semi-desert area where water is a big, a big issue. So most of the varieties which were developed in the southwest couldn't just adapt and perform well in this area. Then breeders start to think about like you know uh, updating their breeding strategy. Then at this point they decided like to develop coffee varieties for each region, like by collecting local land races or genetic materials within each region and develop a variety uh, respect to uh, these, these areas. So uh, starting 2004, uh, 
the Jim Agricultural Research Center where I used to work, just we started like developing local land race development program. We went to each area, collected different genetic material, we experimented on the varieties and we developed local land race varieties. These varieties are called like specialty coffee varieties these days. Uh, so yeah, so in, in, in 1917, uh, the strategy was like to develop a white adapting varieties, but back after 2004, uh, the strategy was like to develop specific adapting uh, coffee varieties. So as of today, I can say uh, most of the farmers in Ethiopia, they, can pro they, they produce improved coffee varieties. These are the varieties developed by Jima Agricultural Research Center. As of today, we have around 40 improved coffee varieties. 40. Yeah, 40. Yeah. So these varieties are already distributed in different areas of the country. And at the same time, farmers have their own uh, selections, their own varieties. So they are producing their own local land races, their own varieties, and they are producing uh, improved coffee varieties released from JCR. Yeah, so I'm going to hold up something. <clears throat> what you see here on the screen is a, <clears throat> many of you are probably familiar with counterculture's variety map that they've made in the past. So they've now made a new one that's just for Ethiopia based on some of the work um, that Getu has done and that it's summarized in this new beautiful book that counterculture just published called Ethiopian, a reference guide to Ethiopian coffee varieties. Um, and I think, you know, for those of us who, who um, maybe even like myself kind of love Ethiopian coffee but tend to think of it in relatively simplistic terms like oh it's Harar or oh it's maybe from this one particular washing station because that's how it's been marketed in the past we may have a much more sophisticated understanding and vocabulary for varieties from other parts of the world like oh I know what SL28 is I know what Pacamata is Ethiopia has that same complexity and in fact a much deeper complexity because they have this amazing genetic diversity to work with. And over the last 40 years, the Jima Agricultural Center has done a tremendous amount of work to select and adapt to take from that storehouse of genetic diversity and find varieties that are going to work for very specific localized environments. There is no other coffee producing country in the world that is able to do this and that has the ability to breed in this way because Ethiopia is the birthplace of coffee and does have this genetic diversity to work with. Um, so it's super complex and I think um, you know this book and this um, awesome graphic are just the beginning of helping the specialty coffee world develop a more sophisticated vocabulary around Ethiopian coffee varieties and some of this diversity because it's not just one thing. It's not just Ethiopian coffee or wild coffee or heirloom coffee. Um, it's all of these things. So every one of these little nodes represents a distinct um, homogenous <clears throat> um, stable variety for the most part. So um, it's pretty impressive. Um, let's see, Tim, I want to ask for your perspectives on this as a, as a coffee buyer, like how do you, for one thing, I mean, why, why did you want to do this and how do you process all this, all of this? Yeah. So that, I mean, to, to me, like probably just even listening to this, you have, you're kind of like torn between these two worlds of Ethiopia has been developing these coffees for 40 years and photos of growers picking coffee in the forest. And so as a coffee buyer, you know, the term heirloom has always been kind of how we've marketed and talked about these coffees. And when you started traveling and you started seeing this and you had farmers and you would ask them what variety you're growing, 
and they would say a name and it would be like, oh, that's interesting. What does that, what does that name mean? It's like, and then you look into it more and it's like, oh, there's a number. That's seven, four, one, one, zero. That's what is that? What does that mean? Like, is it heirloom? Is it improved? Is it wild? Where, where do these coffees come from? And the more and more I dug in, the more and more the, you know, the complexity becomes more clear and then it becomes less clear again. <laughs> um, and, you know, so the whole, you know, the whole initiative is to, yeah, just look and figure out how, how these things work together. What is, the, what is the truth behind that? And how do you have better conversations with growers, producers, researchers on what these coffees actually are? How do we taste these things? How do we figure out what the potential is? Um, and that's, you know, that's where this came from. It was this idea of, yeah, what is, what is really happening? And then how do we take it to the next level? Because just talking about heirloom isn't going to take us to the next place in Ethiopia. Is it going to take us to the next place and other research around there? And, you know, I had this, you know, me and Getu were in Ethiopia not that long ago, and I had this very crazy experience that kind of drove everything home for me, which is we were on a farm with a grower, and I was like, oh, what variety are you growing? And he says, Corme which is this old land race kind of name based on a, based on a tree in Ethiopia. And it's meant it's super compact. It's, you know, uh, you know, it tends to be a variety I like. I've heard a lot of farmers talk about it. They like it. And then I was like, okay, interesting. And the trees looked really new as a, like the plot looked perfect. And I was like, what number is that? And he's like, seven, four, one, one, two. I'm like, oh, okay. So you've just added a whole nother layer, layer of complexity to that, which is you're using an old land race name for an improved selection. And, you know, this is actually a variety that came from the southwest of Ethiopia. It was output 40 years ago. And there's a lot of information about it. It's one of the most popular varieties in the country. It's probably producing hundreds of thousands of pounds of coffee in the country. And just no one really knows that that exists. So that's kind of where all this came from. And just to follow up on that, I mean, situationally, the, the way that Ethiopia's coffee market is structured and how coffee gets bought and sold... I'm presuming it's not so easy, you know, let's say you have your book in hand and you have this at the ready and you're like, oh, that looks interesting. I want to, I want to buy some whatever. It's, it's not really like that right now in Ethiopia, right? You're not buying single varietal coffees on the market. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough, you know, it's a, a tough balance because, you know, Ethiopia has this very rich, um, you know, they have, they have the gene pool. Uh, it's very valuable to the world. I think, you know, Ethiopia has tried to, or at least, uh, you know, I'm assuming in research, the, the goal is like, how do you bring Ethiopia into the equation? Uh, they can really be a huge benefit to the world of coffee research, knowledge, and gene material for what, what what's happening out there. And yeah, but no one, like, I've seen, like, maybe a few variety-specific coffees out of Ethiopia, and even those are maybe, like, murky at best as to what they exactly are. But I've also had the experience of going to a farm and saying, oh, what are you growing? And they're like, oh, yeah, we work with the Jimmy Agricultural Research Center, and we're growing 100 hectares of 74110. And it's like, oh, you are growing a single variety, <laughs> and you have multiple, multiple containers of it. Um, so, it, you know, it is, it is very fascinating. I think, you know, the, the goal is how do you... In the world of geishas and all these interesting coffees, how do you, yeah, what is the next geisha? Where is it going to come from? It's probably going to come from Ethiopia, and, like, how do we, how do we make that happen? Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. I, so I want to turn a little bit away from Ethiopia to some of the rest of Africa um, and, and talk about another really cool um, resource that's new. 
this is the World Coffee Research Arabica Coffee Varieties Catalog. This in and of itself is not new. Um, this was originally, project was started a couple of years ago. But um, it's not only a print document, it's also an online, totally free resource. So definitely encourage you to go check it out. It's, um, hold on, right here. Um, but it's a living document. So one of our big projects at World Coffee Research has been to help produce resources for coffee farmers, but also for all of you, that help you understand um, the differences between these different varieties that are grown around the world because they are not the same. And especially important for farmers, they really can have significant differences in their agronomic performance. So that means, like, what do they do on the farm? Do they produce super high cup quality or are they resistant to disease or both? And depending on what farm you have, where you are, those questions matter a lot, right? Quality, cup quality is not the only thing driving a farmer's decision about what to plant. Um, in many cases, it's the last thing driving that decision and that it really matters to understand that about um, how coffee producers are are running their businesses. Um, this last year, we had the opportunity to expand the catalog to include 11 new varieties from um, six countries in East Africa. So those are now available um, on that website and, and through here as well. And we have with us um, Christoph, who is kind of the lead author of that expansion. Um, and I just want to ask you, Christoph, to um, uh, reflect a little bit on some of what we learned in the process of pulling this catalog together um, about the variety landscape in Africa in general. Um, it, you know, Kenya is covered in the catalog, Malawi, uh, Rwanda. Like, what are these varieties that are growing in these countries besides Ethiopia, and how did they get there? Uh, thank you, Hannah. Yeah, we, we, we quite learned a lot because we, we really went through the history of, uh, of coffee varieties in East Africa. And the first thing that is obvious now, but that was like a shock, is that all the Ethiopian, Yemen, Indonesia, Bourbon, America thing was in the early 18th century. Okay? And Kenya and East Africa, which is just nearby Ethiopia, the really first coffee growing in this country, in those countries, was in the early 20th century. So you have a two centuries difference between um, uh, the Ye Ethiopia, Yemen, India, Indonesia, Fortipica, and uh, Yemen, Bourbon, America. This is number one. And two centuries after that, you had the first growing, coffee growing in East Africa, just nearby Ethiopia. So that was the first thing that we realized that. I mean, we, we, we knew that somehow, but we just realized that. Mm -hmm. Just to make sure I, I totally understand. So even though Kenya, Tanzania are right next door, basically, to Ethiopia, the coffee didn't come there, for the most part, from Ethiopia. It went out to all these other places in the world, to the Americas, to these islands, to Indonesia, and eventually made its way back into Africa via these other places. Yes. Yeah. Two okay. centuries later. Later. Okay. So as you can see on this slide, you had different entries, introduction in East Africa from Bourbon Island, that the French missions, because it was through the French missionaries. Uh, you have also very important and often overlooked the uh, genetic material from 
India, uh, when uh, out of Yemen, there was a stop in India before it reached Indonesia with the Dutch. So, uh, and uh, India is a very important place uh, for the early genetic diversity out of Yemen. So there's a lot of varieties like uh, Kent, Jackson, Korg that were introduced in uh, East Africa. Then you have back from America, uh, some typica from Jamaica that uh, were known as Nyasaland, which was the former name, name of Malawi. And then that went their, their uh, way through Africa and ended up in uh, Uganda, for example, known as Bugisu. So this is a typica that came from uh, Jamaica. And also back from America, some Bourbons that are known as, for example, Bourbon Mayagues uh, in, uh, in uh, Rwanda uh, and Burundi. And also some few, very few, from Ethiopia. Very few. And uh, like uh, I can cite two of them that went out of Ethiopia, like in the 30s. That was one was uh, 30s, 40s. One was Rume Sudan. In the other one is the famous geisha. Okay? So all those ones came together in East Africa in like a few decades. That's what we then ended up to call, them, to call this place the melting pot. It, the, East Africa became a melting pot. And it is very interesting to see the difference between a one variety travel around the world, typica bourbon, and in East Africa, a melting pot of very different uh, uh, origins back to East Africa. Mm-hmm. And so then starting in like the 1910s, 1920s, you see countries like Kenya and Tanzania in particular beginning to um, bo- both bring in new material from these other places, like going to farms in India and finding things that look drought-resistant and bringing them in, and then also developing local breeding programs. Can you say a little bit about, um, I've pulled up here uh, a slide that shows a couple of the predominant varieties in Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Burundi, um, the Jacksons, the, the SL series. Maybe you could say a little bit about SL coffee, since people know it. Okay. Um, the Indian varieties that came, it was actually because they were rust-resistant at that time. The, the only place out of Ethiopia at that time where you could find some rust-resistant varieties was in India. Because in other places of the world, it was only Bourbon or Tipica, and they were susceptible to rust. So this first jamplasm uh, uh, in, uh, in India was really important. And so, they were brought into East Africa, and there were two main, let's say, breeding center. One was the um, Scott, La- uh, Scott Laboratories, uh, that is the ancestor of uh, uh, the Riru uh, Coffee Research Institute right now in Kenya. And there was another breeding center, uh, very important, uh, at the uh, foot of Kilimanjaro uh, in uh, Liamungu, which is now the place of the Tanzanian uh, Coffee Research Institute. And most what happened for those varieties that as a melting pot, you had a lot of population. They were a mixed, most of the mix was natural, not a lot of controlled pollination, but all put together. And basically, the breeders, they look at some trees and say, hey, this tree is good. And those trees became the SL. 
series in Kenya and in Tanzania, the Kipi series. So those were like uh, trees that were uh, looking good out of some natural mixes between different populations. Okay, and just to, to finish, so which is very difficult for the breeders today, is that um, to find the very reference of, let's say, SL34, let's say that one. It was selected in the 30s. Who knows exactly the traceability? Who knows what happened between the time it was named SL34, one tree, and what today we know as SL34? Is it, is it, it is the same name? Is it the same uh, uh, reference? We don't know, but what is clear is that we have a reference that what is known today as SL34. We can name it, whether it was the exact initial tree that was called that way, it's sometimes difficult to know. So when Tim said, he's, it was unclear and then it started getting clear and then it got more unclear. <laughs> That's the case with varieties often. Mm. Um, I just want to highlight two kind of themes that I've heard mentioned a couple times because I think it's really important to understand. Christoph mentioned um, going to India and finding these looking at these trees and seeing that they were resistant to rust and saying, oh, that's important. I want, I'm going to bring that back to Kenya. Getu mentioned as well that some of the, what drove the establishment of the Ethiopian coffee breeding program was the emergence of an epidemic of coffee berry borer. So we in this room are, was that right? Disease. So d disease, sorry, coffee berry disease. Um, so, you know, we in this room are, are thinking about how a coffee tastes a coffee farmer and the research institutes that are supporting those coffee farmers are thinking most, and as they should be, about what is going to help these farmers continue to be able to grow the trees on their land without them dying. Um, and we had, there was a huge epidemic of coffee berry disease um, in East Africa around that time that actually drove a lot of breeding that began happening in the 70s, both in Ethiopia, but also Kenya, Tanzania. Um, and you see now, after the coffee leaf rust epidemic that happened in starting in 2012 in Central America, a real resurgence in um, global interest in breeding, because you realize when these sort of huge kind of epidemic tragedies happen, just how fragile this whole ecosystem is, and that if coffee producers are losing 50% of their crop for multiple years in a row to disease, they're not going to continue to be coffee farmers for very long. And this is, this is really one of the main aims of breeding programs around the world, is to help farmers protect against these kind of losses. Quality matters a lot, and we know that it can help farmers um, improve their profitability and stay in the game. Um, but coffee's very far from being like tomatoes is maybe an example. I'm a gardener in Oregon. If you go to the local nursery near my house, there's like a thousand kinds of tomatoes. They have green stripes. There's like a purple one. They're different sizes. They taste... All of those, that vast kind of array of difference has been created by breeders for people like me who are like, I want a green tomato. I want a zebra-striped tomato. We're not at that level yet in coffee where, where there are lots of breeders working on these very specific kind of quality um, focused origins. We're, we're, we're getting there. We're beginning to get there. And I want to turn to that now um, a little bit, Benoit, um, because ultimately... All Arabica coffee originates from Ethiopia. So in a way, you can say all, all Arabica coffee is Ethiopian. Um, 
we've come to associate certain varieties with the places they're more widely grown, like Pacamata in El Salvador or Catuayi in Brazil. Um, but some Ethiopian coffees are not grown anywhere outside of Ethiopia. Some of the, the stuff that you've worked with and Tim that you describe in your book um, we're just beginning to be at a time now in the history of global coffee breeding where we're looking at some of those Ethiopian varieties that have not traditionally grown anywhere outside Ethiopia and beginning to draw on them to do new breeding and create new coffee varieties. Can you talk a little bit about the global breeding work that's happening now to take advantage of, um, to begin to use some of that material? Maybe something that it, it was not so clear on what we explained uh, for the moment is that in Yemen, people uh, do uh, without uh, knowing, without uh, know-how, but they do a clear adaptation of coffee to the draft condition that exists in Yemen. I mean, in Yemen, the, the rainfall is very, very low. The quantity of rain is, very, is not a rainy country. So uh, they adapt the coffee to this situation, and when the, the and when the Dutch people, French people, British people uh, pick some seeds from Yemen and they export these seeds to Latin America, and in Latin America people do uh, new varieties, new varieties as Bourbon, Tipica, Catura, Mundo Novo, Catway, and until maybe the 80s, most of uh, 90% of the production in Latin America was done by, uh, was originated from uh, uh, maybe three varieties, Catua, Catuai, Mundo Novo. And those varieties were highly susceptible to all diseases, but highly productive and very well adapted to the condition of Latin America. But uh, uh, doing that, they create a genetic base very uh, with uh, homogeneous. Uh, and when we try to cross this genetic base with Ethiopian, Ethiopian land races, we obtain uh, new varieties that name the name is F1 hybrid, uh, cross that are uh, originating from crossing. Ethiopian land races by the genetic base in uh, Latin America, and those F1 hybrids really uh, demonstrate a high vigor. Um, and these Ethiopians are coming from a collection that we, uh, in the f uh, se uh, 70, uh, 60 and 70, we have created a collection, a big uh, germplasm in uh, Costa Rica, in Colombia, and in Brazil, with Ethiopian accessions. So right now we have part, maybe 20, maybe 10%, 20% of the genetic diversity that exists in Ethiopia is represented in Latin America. And we can cross with those Ethiopian accessions with the Latin American uh, varieties to obtain those new varieties. So you remember that the graph with all the dots on it and there was like the, the blue circle of the varieties we cultivate and then the big one with all the dots. For the first time, breeders are beginning to um, take from each of those groups and cross them together to make these new varieties called F1 hybrids. Um, 
and they're, they're performing really well. Benoit used the word vigorous is, is the word. Very few of these varieties have been released for farmers yet, but there's a lot of active breeding happening. So over the next 10 years, you're going to start seeing more and more and more varieties that are the result of crossing the existing widely cultivated varieties with uh, the Ethiopian more genetically diverse materials um, and, and seeing them coming into, we think, probably very widespread production around the globe because they're performing so well for farmers. They produce more coffee. They have high cup quality potential. Um, some of them are very highly tolerant to diseases, even if they're not specifically resistant to them. So they might have a little disease on them, but they're not like crippled by it, if that makes sense. Um, so this is really exciting, right? Because this is opening up an entirely new frontier in varieties for coffee. So we've had these kind of waves, right? The coffee leaves Ethiopia. You have Bourbon and Tipica spreading around the world. That's the first wave. Then you have uh, more intensive breeding happening in the 20s and 30s in places like Colombia, Brazil, East Africa. That's giving us the Mundo Novos, the Catuayis, the Caturas, a lot of the varieties that, that we know by name. And now you have this, this new wave happening. Um, there's been continuous breeding happening in the interim time. I don't mean to suggest that there hasn't, but this is, this is a whole new... Um, approach to breeding, and it's bringing in new genetic diversity that we've never really had outside of Ethiopia. So, of course, Ethiopia um, has and will continue to have um, and will continue to produce some of the best coffees in the world because of the genetic diversity that they have available. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of trying to paint a picture, I think, of, of what has happened in Africa with variety development over the past... Um, depending on how you look at it, 10,000 years <laughs> or a couple hundred years. Um, just before we move to audience questions and kind of in closing, I'm going to ask people to reflect on a couple things. Um, Tim, over the course of writing this book, I know that you revised your thinking a lot about kind of like what does variety even mean? What does it mean to me as a buyer? How do I think about varieties in terms of the way that I um, buy coffee, the way that I market the coffee that we're selling? Um, can you talk a little bit about how what you've learned has changed your approach? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if you can pull up the, like, Kenya one real quick. And I'll, you know, I'll talk a little bit about Kenya in the context of this. You know, Ethiopia, like I said, became... You know, it was very unclear. I thought it became a lot more clear, and then it became unclear. And you got to sort through that. You got to keep going through that. And how do you, you know, how do you get the best coffee out of Ethiopia? How do you understand these coffees? Is this Yurgachefe, this old heirloom variety, or is this really an improved CBD resistant variety that is grown everywhere in the country and actually tastes really delicious? Maybe that's a really good thing to promote. Um, and, and so, you know, it's kind of got those discussions going with a lot of farmers on what they're growing, what they actually have, and yeah, how to, how to proceed in the future. So we're trying to describe those coffees a lot better, trying to talk to farmers about what that, what that means and how we market that and how we talk about it with people that maybe don't have the understanding. Uh, but Kenya was a really interesting one too, like as much as, you know, so we're kind of developing the same information on Kenya, which is this place that looks really clear on the surface. There's a less than a handful of varieties that we kind of know and probably only three that we really put on a bag and talk about. But this idea of like Riru 11 is kind of, you know, this, I don't know, roaster hated uh, variety out there. But then when you look at the research and like what Riru 11 actually is, 
which, according to different people, is about 66 different siblings of Riru 11. Uh, some of those siblings could be really impressive. And some Riru 11s I've tasted over the last few years have been really impressive. And that changed my opinion about what I promote and market and how I work with farms. And, you know, kind of gets rid of some of the bias that maybe I had against varieties. And Batian's the same story. You know, Batian is really three different distinct lines of Batian and like how that was created and exactly what it what it is. I think we all kind of come to the table with a lot of bias and a lot of impressions about what we're purchasing and what we're thinking about and what we want. Um, but a lot of times that's based on incorrect information and things that we should probably understand a lot better before making biases. I'm going to throw an open-ended question out there, and if no one wants to pick it up, that's fine. We'll just move. But um, basically a similar question, but for the researchers at the table. Um, we've come a long way over the last 100 years. The way that we think about coffee breeding now is different than, you know, it, it, it used to be entirely just walk into a forest, look at a tree that looks like it's got good qualities, take it out. We're now using uh, genetic screening in order to create varieties. Um, the process of developing varieties looks different. The landscape of varieties looks very different. Um, would anybody like to reflect a little bit on where we are now and what you see coming in the future, and, and especially the, the parts of it that are exciting to you? This is Christophe Montagnon speaking. Yes. Uh, certainly there's a lot of very exciting things coming, uh, coming on, coming in. Uh, the, uh, um, we are... Entering, I mean, uh, the plant breeding is uh, is entering a very exciting uh, era of uh, molecular breeding, and uh, this is not that. It's not, of course, genetic transformation. We know you know that World Coffee Research is not working on GMO, but we are working on molecular breeding, which is a way to speed up the traditional process. Uh, uh, the traditional process, as Benoit was saying, uh, for, to breed a variety, you need like 25 years. Okay? So what molecular breeding is going to, to do is help us like, decrease this time maybe to 10 years. Uh, when we are looking for some traits like uh, uh, resistance to diseases or like, uh, 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 like some very specific qualities, for example, uh, or chemical composition, uh, we will be able very soon to be able to tell from the nursery as soon, in fact, as soon as a plant has some leaves, we are going to be able to look at the DNA of that leaves and we will be able to predict with some probability and statistics, but we will be able to predict whether this one will be resistant or not to disease, whether this one will be a given uh, volatile compound that is important to quality, yes or no. So that will help us really um, uh, either be more, much more efficient and, 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 and screen a lot of things. Uh, I would say either, no, Altogether, we are going to, sorry, to, to screen a lot of different materials very easily, cost-effective, and to uh, save a lot of time to go to a, a new variety. So that's, uh, that's molecular breeding that is coming is very important to us. It's not a silver, bu uh, silver bullet. We are not going to solve everything. We are not going to solve yield with molecular breeding. This is not true because it is too 
quantitative. There are too much genes in that. Very quantitative. When I say quantitative, depending on a lot of different genes. But for those traits that are depending on few genes, this molecular breeding will help us save time and money in our breeding progress. This is Getu Bakili speaking. I want to add something on uh, maybe the application of genomics in, in the coffee industry. Then, yeah, we are in a very advanced stage for, for genomics in crops, like, but uh, the application of genomics in coffee is still uh, lagging behind. Uh, like, for, for example, Ethiopia has got a very great untapped, untapped potential for improving uh, the coffee industry around the world. But the point is, like, Ethiopia is almost uh, get closed for for having partnership with different institutions around the world. But uh, when Ethiopia says this kind of strict regulation not to move coffee genetic resource outside of Ethiopia, uh, like the world coffee industry uh, should think the way how we can collaborate with Ethiopia, maybe bringing in like different facilities. You know, Ethiopia is like uh, very developing, still quite poor in terms of like science and technology. Uh, we don't have like the right infrastructure for the application of like genomics in the country. So bringing all these kind of facilities, infrastructure down to the country and exploiting that great untapped potential may uh, safeguard like the future coffee industry. Yeah, climate change, uh, like the big interest and demand from the specialty coffee industry, like the industry is really changing very fast and like requesting and demanding for very specific coffee varieties. Uh, that, is, that is a trend we are uh, moving on right now. So how we can exploit, how we can, uh, you know, just uh, respond to this kind of uh, demand. So there should be a kind of platform where we can uh, let Ethiopia participate uh, in the uh, global coffee improvement uh, effort. So for me, yeah, uh, there has been different, different moves like from different actors around the world, like to bring in Ethiopia in the system. But uh, the regulation has been there maybe for, for, for 100 years. Uh, like the country doesn't want to get out its own varieties outside of Ethiopia. Uh, this is something which I really appreciate as an Ethiopian. Uh, but to safeguard the global coffee industry, where is, where is the possibility? Where is another dimension of thinking we can uh, start thinking and bring Ethiopia into, into the system? So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm also working on genomic prediction. I know that we should have a kind of very robust, strong geno genomic prediction uh, where we can, we can use a model like to predict the future genetic potential of a specific variety, like a variety resistant to uh, drought tolerance, a variety with high quality. So we don't need to like go into the field and plant the varieties and wait for 20, 25 years, just only like taking the leaf, sequencing the DNA, having a good prediction model and making the prediction and selecting the variety. So there is a huge material sitting in Ethiopia, and there is a great knowledge and great expertise outside of Ethiopia. But we need to have a kind of like, like you know, a win-win approach where we can use that knowledge and that resource and safeguard uh, the coffee industry around the world. Thank you, Benoit. You have a just a few 
just few words to finish on this thematic, maybe uh, to have an overview, a global overview. There is uh, some problems in the future for coffee that is a, a dramatic uh, global uh, uh, changing, global warming. Mm -hmm. And the diseases, epidemics, uh, for example, rust, CBD, we, 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 we talk about it. And maybe other uh, new diseases uh, like uh, Xylella fastidiosa, that is a bacteria that uh, is uh, really a, a problem f not only for coffee but for other, other um, uh, crops. And um, all of that, uh, we have to design farming systems more adapted to this global change. So there is an agroforestry system right now in Ethiopia, for example, in the majority of the countries that are cultivating coffee is under shade, under trees. But there is also a big country, big producing country as Brazil that are producing in full sun system. And there is, and for each of these farming systems, we have to design varieties adapted to those farming systems. It's not the same thing to design a variety for mechanical, mechan, mechanizing farming system that, for example, for uh, uh, the system we, do, we, we see in the, in the picture. Okay, so we have, we have this challenge. This is a big challenge. And in the future, we can imagine maybe to cultivate coffee in the north or in the south, as occur in, uh, in California, for example. Uh, we, we will be able, maybe with a global warming, to cultivate coffee in green, greenhouses. So we have to think right now to all those possibilities and to design the varieties for the future, because for, to design a variety, it, uh, the, the, the time is more or less 20 years to have a good variety adapted to a farming system. So right now we are thinking about what are the efforts we have to do. And just to, to finish, yes, we are doing also, yes, we are, and we, we will publish in my lab, we, we will publish soon, uh, the, the technique of uh, genome editing on coffee. You, you know that for all the crops, all animals, we use this technology, CRISPR-Cas9, is a new technology, and it is, it is functioning on coffee. So in the future, in the near, near future, we will have all the possibility, all the tools to, to create new varieties. But the, the difficulties is to design for what kind of farming system. And so in a way, what you're describing, Benoit, is trying to do for the world what um, Ethiopia has bega began to do about 20 years ago, where rather than they have a single approach, a single or a small group of varieties, really a huge proliferation of varieties that are tailored to the different needs of farmers, the different environments that they're growing coffee in. We can look at a graph like this and it's like, wow, that's a lot more varieties than we, than we realized even existed in Ethiopia we look at something like this for Kenya, there should be as many nodes as there is for Ethiopia and Kenya and all over the world. What we need for coffee is, is a lot more varieties that are specifically tailored to the needs of farmers and the needs of the environment. So I hope that if we gather here again in 20 or 30 years, because this takes a long time, uh, that you know, resources like this and 
this will be four or five or ten times the size that they are now because that's what coffee producers need. It's also what you need, right? Because one element of the diversity and, and profusion of variety development that we need is stuff that's very specifically tailored for quality, right? I mean, we're not at that point yet for coffee where we can design a variety to have a very specific cup profile, but we will get there. That's coming. Um, so... I just want to re-highlight, you know, if you're interested in coffee varieties in general, but especially African varieties, you have three amazing new resources here. Uh, the book of Jeff that tells the story of how coffee moved out of the forests of Ethiopia. This incredible reference guide to Ethiopian varieties. Nothing like this has ever been available before in coffee, for, especially for, for this community. Um, and this living document that continues to expand and grow and help coffee producers know about the varieties available to them. Um, I want to thank my panelists and invite folks to come up and ask questions. We have about 10 minutes um, to get a couple questions in. Hi. Um, clearly, the role of the breeder is extremely important to Arabica coffee. Um, so for some context, if a farmer has two stable populations of a particular variety and they are close to each other enough to um, create a natural cross, what percentage or how much uh, without the interference of the breeder could a farmer expect to see? Like what kind of, um, what kind of crossing? Does that make sense? Yeah. So okay. <clears throat> Oh, okay, so if you have, like, on a coffee farm, two stable varieties that are growing close together, will they, will they cross? Will, they, will you get outcrossing, basically, is the question. This is Christophe Montagnon speaking. Uh, as you know, Arabica is, it can self-pollinate. Uh, that means it has sex with itself. It does not need another plant in order to sexually reproduce. Yes. <laughs> Sounds fun, right? Sounds fun. We should all go be Arabica yeah. coffee plants. And, uh, <laughs> but it can also outcross, okay? So when it is, and uh, we, we think that there is like 25 to 30% of, of outcrossing. So it is very possible that you get outcrossing uh, with your two uh, different trees. Now the big question in, in your question is, what you see as different, is it really different from a genetic point of view? Because sometimes you've got some shade, you've got some... I mean, uh, you can't tell for sure that two trees that, that are looking different are genetically different. But if they are, you might well have some uh, uh, natural crosses. Uh, it is happening much more than we think. This is Timothy Hill speaking. I actually have a question that's a kind of follow-up to that, which is, so from my understanding, which is very low at this point, but... It would be the seed of that if you were having those natural crosses. So it would be an F1 seed, which means that would it make sense for farmers to like try to propagate more seed from their farm to see what kind of crosses and what kind of genetics they're getting? Or Because you're not going to... Sure, it could cross, but all of that seed is going to buyers. Uh, maybe I will leave it also to Benoit, but not every cross is an F1 cross. To, to, to have an F1 cross, you, you need two main conditions. The first one is that the parents, the two parents, are very homozygous. Uh, that's that's the, one of the first conditions for being called an F1 hybrid. And the second is that you need genetic distance between the two parents. Uh, so that, that means that F1 hybrids or crosses are very specific. Not any cross is an F1 hybrid. Mm -hmm. okay. 
Yeah. And, and just to follow up a tiny bit on this. So the genetics of a plant or of any living being interact with its environment. And there may be observable differences that you see in the plant, like a, like a different, I'm just throwing out a bad example, but a different color of the leaf or a different color of the fruit that do not correspond to uh, differences that are baked into the genetics. And I think fruit color is actually a good example of that. So, right, right, Benoit? So you can have like orange bourbon and red bourbon, and they're not genetically different. They are not distinct from a genetic point of view varieties. Um, people, you can refer to them that way, and farmers could select, you know, and have a little field with only orange ones. But if you look into the DNA, they're not yeah, just to say in case you couldn't hear. So I think sometimes people think like, oh, orange bourbon or, you know, yellow bourbon and red bourbon, are, they're different and they have different flavor profiles. Color of fruit is one, controlled by one or two genes. Flavor is controlled by the interaction of hundreds of genes. So it's, it's, from a genetic standpoint, you're not having a strong correlation there between color of fruit and flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, my question is more about at what point for the uh, what extent have these gene, these varieties been mapped genetically to where in the counterculture project and the world coffee research project are we sure that these are actual individual varieties and not the the buyer coming to the farm and saying what do you have oh it's different and to what extent is that confident that we have these different varieties speaking is Christophe Montagnon uh, so yes yes the short answer is yes we have uh, uh, mapped, uh, not in the sense of genetic mapping, more of uh, genetic diversity. We have mapped the different varieties. Um, and uh, we are able to, uh, to tell um, for maybe 90% of, uh, of the world coffee, uh, Arabica, we are able to tell that this is uh, this variety. This is geisha, yes, for sure. Or is, but there is one issue that is very important and that we are facing. It is uh, sometimes like a scientific challenge, is that it most of tomatoes or that uh, Hannah was saying, there is a very, very clear reference. I mean, the breeder has the basic seeds of the variety and you can refer that as the very reference. Okay? And in coffee, as I was saying, it's, it's not easy to find the very reference that tells you, okay, if this is this fingerprint, then it is SL34. So we tend to, to tell, for, in some cases it is very clear. In some cases we rather uh, talk about uh, like uh, a cluster or a universe that, uh, for example, you will have a given variety like Pacamara that is uh, covering a given part of the genetic diversity. So it is not one point, but it is like a, a small area, like a, uh, like a region uh, of the genetic diversity that is covered by Pacamara. If you so, were going to think about dots on a map, right? If you had a Bourbon that was exactly matching the reference for Bourbon, they would be exactly on top of each other, the two dots would. For Pacamara, if you had 100 leaf samples from 100 different trees, they might be kind of just right next to each other. They're not like right on top of each other, if that makes sense. 
I, yeah. Tim, I think I know that you have a good point you want to jump in on. Yeah, so if you want to bring up, like, the Kenya map. And so, the, the, you know, the, the work that WCR just released, you know, kind of shattered what I conceptually thought of, of, like, a lot of Kenyan varieties, especially the history, the written history of a lot of these varieties. So you look at SL34, and, you know, the literature from the 50s always associated to, like, a French Mission Bourbon, you know, selected from this variety. And who knows, like, maybe that reference doesn't exist anymore. Maybe... It, that's what it originally was. But according to the DNA that WCR ran, it's not. It aligns more to a Tipica. And to be honest, it, like in the field, it looks more like a Tipica. So that's not super surprising. And there's a lot of varieties that I think just mapped out like that. That's very true. Imbarizi from Burundi, N39 from Tanzania, what uh, Kent, which I think I was always told as a coffee buyer was a Tipica. Uh, did not map out that way under the DNA that they ran. So I think there's a, a lot that we're learning and what is a true reference. Really quick, because we're going to run out of time here. I just want to follow up on what Christoph said. We have the capacity to see what varieties are now. We can, we can look and take a leaf sample and say, oh, yep, it is geisha. Oh, yep, it is bourbon or it's close. That is not the reality on the ground. If you're a coffee producer, you may think that you know that you have bourbon it's very unlikely that you actually know what you have. And that's not through any fault of your own. It's because of that melting pot aspect. Coffee has just been moving around in people's back pockets, in their suitcases, blowing across the field, hand-to-hand to neighbors for hundreds of years. This is not an organized system. Very few coffee producers, we now have the capacity to test, and, and you send us some leaves and we tell you what it is. We're finding that as people do that, very few people know what they have. Um, and it's either closely related or in many cases, like with the SLs, it's totally different. We just had no idea. Um, Colby, you want to ask really quick and then we'll... Okay. Yeah, we're okay. I just, a question regarding the book. One, uh, as a coffee buyer, I'm super, super excited about all the, actually all the research um, that's going down. And as a geographer also, very excited. Um, but I was, I was just curious um, how much the Ethiopian, either government or the, is either, um, was either participatory or... Um, uh, involved in it, or if they're stoked, or uh, spending some time at the Gima <laughs> Agriculture Research Center, I know it's kind of like pretty closed doors and formal. So I was just, I'm wondering if they're, if this is information they're going to get to use, or if it was more like this, you guys just, just trying to consolidate information that was sort of there. Speaking is Timothy Hill. Yeah, so um, I also spent uh, a very small time. Uh, originally, when I first met Getu, we went to JRC. And, you know, to be honest, they were pretty open with the information that they, they said. I couldn't actually see any of the trees that they were talking about. Um, yeah. uh, they wouldn't show me the, the trees and the breeding uh, of the coffee. But, they're, you know, they're pretty open with the information. And if you look hard enough, the information for everything JRC has developed is out there. Yeah. But it's super scattered. It's in research documents all over the internet, and you know the numbers and make sense and the histories. And you know there's a hundred-page manual about the CBD breeding uh, in Ethiopia in the 70s. Uh, so you know basically this is you know this isn't a lot of new research. There's things that we learned when we traveled and talked to people, but this is just a compilation of documents over the last 40, 50 years. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. And, and JRC was. Peripherally, we, we talked to them, but they, they did not participate in the, okay. in the definitions. Yeah. I'm going to jump in here and, and thank all of you for coming to learn more about this. I invite you to come ask questions of our panelists and really thank our panelists for their time today. Thank you. That was Timothy Hill, Jeff Kohler, Gaetu Bekele Gedefa, Christophe Montagnon, 
Dr. Benoit Bertrand and Hannah Neuschwander at Expo in 2018. Remember to check our show notes for a full transcript of this lecture and visit worldofcoffee.org for tickets to our next run of lectures. This has been an episode of the SCA Podcast. Thank you for joining us.